Welcome to the VIP Jazzwall Report, the report that asks insightful questions and gets revealing answers from people whose products touch lives in ways beyond the ordinary. Our guest today doesn't sell you what you want, but he sells you what he thinks you need. In the process, he's made our lives easier, made our wallets lighter, and his bank account heavier. He brings inventions to life and to the masses and makes millions of dollars in the process. Our guest today is the brains behind Telebrands and that famous logo as seen on TV. The king of the infomercial and the savior to the inventor. His name is AJ Kubani. AJ, welcome to the show. Okay, thank you. It's great to be here. Ah, well, I bet that's the best introduction you've ever had. Absolutely. <laughs> well, AJ, you're a true symbol of the American success story. Uh, give our listeners a brief account of how you got into the business of telebrands. Well, it was uh, 1983. Mm-hmm. I was in college, and I was bartending and making pizza to make a living and pay my tuition and put some money away. And uh, I, was coming into my, I was in my senior year, and I thought, well, you know, I really need to do something with my life besides make pizza and bartend. So I started looking around for opportunities. And uh, one of the things I did, McDonald's was really growing, so I called and got a packet of information from McDonald's. They wanted $500,000. Well, I only had $20,000 in my bank account, so I couldn't afford that. So I tried something less expensive. I called up uh, the city of New York and found out about uh, the taxi cab medallion. That was $25,000 at the time. It would have been a good investment because today those medallions go for about a million dollars. Uh, so I tried a bunch of things, and finally, one day on my way to school, I stopped by my corner store to get a cup of coffee, and uh, I saw the National Enquirer. And the thing that got my attention about the National Enquirer was Brooke Shields. Her picture was, you know, she was the hot young model at the time, and <clears throat> I was in college at the time, so I found the picture very appealing, and I picked up the National Enquirer, spent the extra 65 cents and bought it. And that day during school, I thumbed through it, and what I found more intriguing than, than Brooke Shields was all of the mail-order ads in the National Enquirer. And they're selling everything from digital watches for $10 to the bull worker that promised to get your body into perfect shape in just 15 minutes a day. I remember that. And, you know, and, and I remember that I, said, you know, I looked at this and I said, you know, this is probably a, a business that I can afford to start with my $20,000. If I just came up with the right product and wrote the right ad that I could, you know, put in the National Enquirer, and hopefully people would send me money. So that day, I was so excited about this idea that I called the National Enquirer that day. Uh, They were located in Lantana, Florida, and they sent me a packet, and I got, a few days later, I got the packet in the mail, and I got the rate card, and a couple of things got me really excited. First of all, they were the largest circulation paper in the country, and they had a circulation of 5 million people. I said, wow, that's amazing. If I could run an ad and get a 10% response, you know, that's 500,000 orders. And immediately I was thinking millions of dollars were coming into my mind that, wow, I could make millions of dollars very fast. I could be a millionaire by the summer after I graduate from college, and I could retire in another year and you know, move to the Bahamas or something. <laughs> so you know, all these images of grandeur came into mind right and uh but the ad was the ad was seven thousand dollars which i thought was expensive but i said well if i get millions of dollars in orders what's seven thousand dollars and i have twenty thousand dollars in the bank so what the heck i needed a product idea i think i need a great product what's the best-selling product that i could sell and i didn't have to look any further than my own college campus because on college 
the biggest thing that every student had were these new headsets that they were wearing and a product called the Sony Walkman. I remember that. And I say, yeah, that is the hottest product. You know, I couldn't understand why the students were going crazy after this because it's basically an AM FM radio with stereo headphones. And I knew that just a few years earlier when I was in high school, I bought an AM FM pocket radio for $20. Mm-hmm. Now, these Walkmans were selling for $60. So I said, well, if I basically just found a, a nice AM FM radio, got a nice pair of headphones, I could sell it fairly cheap and compete with Sony. So through a family connection, I found a supplier in Taiwan. And using a telex machine, because we didn't have email, we didn't have fax machines, there was something called a telex machine back then. I used someone's telex machine and sent the telex to this manufacturer in Taiwan. And he sent me a whole bunch of samples of pocket radios. And I found one that looked superb, you know, looked better than the Sony Walkman, actually. I asked him if he could supply the headphones, the Sony Walkman-style headphones, and the mail-order package and ship it to me. And he said, no problem. And the cost to me, well, my landed cost, including freight and duty, would be $6. So I got really excited now, right? Yeah, Sony's selling this thing for $60. I could sell it. I thought I'll sell it for $10. I'll really just, everybody would buy one. I'll sell millions of them and, you know, make $4 a piece. Right. So, you know, with great detail and being very meticulous, I wrote the ad, going scrutinizing every single word in the ad, and finally placed the ad in the National Enquirer, and the ad was scheduled to break on May 17th, 1983, the same week that I graduated from college. So this was it. This was, everything was coming together. This was going to be it, and the bottom line is the ad ran, the orders dribbled in, and luckily I broke even on that first ad. But it was so exciting to me, the fact that I wrote an ad put in a paper, and complete strangers sent me money. It was just a fantastic feeling that I had the ability to make that happen. So I continued to pursue it. For another year and a half of running ads, different products, finding different products, and finally a year and a half later, started to make a profit. And a year and a half later, in 1985, Telebrands turned its first profit that year of $250,000 on $1.5 million in sales, which is fantastic. Think, I'm 25 years old back in 1985. $250,000 was an unbelievable amount of money. I couldn't believe that I actually made that much money. I was on top of the world. And we continued to pursue it. And it grew even, it, it, I got the hang of it very quickly. Right. It turned out I had a pretty good knack for this. And the following year, we did $11 million in sales, went from one and a half to $11 million, made a $3 million profit. And then I started to think, okay, how big can I make this thing now? I, didn't, I loved this so much. That dream of you know, retiring, going to the Bahamas was completely gone. All I could think about is, you know, how can I find more products? How can I advertise them? How can I distribute more? And I continued to perpetuate that. And think about how we could expand. So in 1986, or sorry, 1987, we expanded onto TV. Mm-hmm. We started to advertise products on TV. And that was even more exciting. So what did you do when you made your first million dollars? What did you do with it? I bought a house. The first house that I bought in 1986. Fully I paid? 
fully paid. You know, the interesting thing is that when I when I signed the contract for the house, I applied for a mortgage, and I went to the closing. And at the closing, the bank sat there and said, "You know, well, you know, we found a problem with your credit. You pay, you made some payment late on your student loan, mm-hmm. and we have to charge you an extra point." And I said, "You know, you're going to charge me an extra. You, you wait until the closing date." When you know I probably don't have any other option, and you get charged me an extra point, which came to an extra two thousand dollars or something, and it, it got me a little disturbed, you know, a little bit upset with them, and I just said, "Forget it. I don't need you. I'm just going to pay cash for the house." <laughs> and I have to tell you, that was an amazing feeling. They had the ability to do that. So the first house I bought was two hundred and three thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and it was great that I could buy it all cash. So. That was it. And the rest of the money, you know, we just I, I needed capital to build the business, so I continued to invest in the business. So in all of this till today, what's been the secret of your success? Um, well, I would say, uh, first of all, I, I have a, a real passion for what I do. I love finding different products. I have a, a good sense of... Uh, I guess from all my experience, a good sense of what's going to sell. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've always been a very hard worker. Even those days when I was in college, you know, I worked two jobs. I went to school full-time, and I worked my way through college. So I've always been a hard worker. So I think passion and hard work are the key to success in anything. Any other secret? The other secret, um, I'm not sure. I think uh, being able to uh, identify the right products. I, I have a, a knack for uh, figuring out what consumers buy or want to buy. So you know what America wants. Exactly. Well, that goes very well with what the tweet you gave on 8th of May because I was following you, and you actually tweeted a quote from Zig Ziglar who said you can have everything in life you want if you will just help enough people get what they want. Uh isn't that very true? That is very true. Uh, it, it's it's very true. It's uh, it's exactly it describes exactly what I do. I find what America wants. I help them get what they want, like uh, you know, a new type of cookware, like our, our organic, or a new type of hose, like our expandable garden hose that makes using a hose much easier than it was before. Go on, pitch me your catalog <laughs> right now. Just do it. But we'll get to that. But. Um, well, that's you, what I do for a living. Right? I know so, you do. Uh, that's why I'm calling this show Life's a Pitch. Yeah. But you've also had your fair share of setbacks. In 2000, you filed for bankruptcy. And according to some of the press reports, you went into therapy and, you know, antidepressants. What happened to your business that you had to go into bankruptcy? Well, you know, I, I don't think there's anyone in business that's never gone through any hardships. Absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I, I, oh, I've almost gone bankrupt a number of times, but in 2000, I actually had to file for Chapter 11. And I have to tell you, it, it was devastating. Uh, well, the things that caused it, first of all, were the business was growing very fast. And I think maybe some lack of controls, maybe overextending ourselves a bit because I'm very aggressive when it comes to business. I'm not risk-averse, so I take big risks. Mm-hmm. And some things, you know, just a number of things in a row went wrong. You know, some bad items, some defective inventory, too much inventory and other items, um, not having enough controls in the business for the growth we were having. Just a number of things went wrong. So we filed Chapter 11 in 2000, and it was the most devastating thing I've ever had to do 
because here's a business I built from nothing, built it up to uh, over $150 million in revenue at that time. Wow. And now yeah, my, my entire life was invested in Telebrands, my entire life, all my friends, the people I worked with, and to just let everybody down and say, okay, all these people that had confidence in me, all my vendors, sorry, I can't pay you, was devastating for me. To tell all of my employees, 50-plus employees, that I'm going to have to let most of you go was devastating for me. Because you know, my entire life, my, my work life and my social life was all wrapped up in the business. So what made you come out of it as a person, as, as an individual, as a character, as a personality? What made you come out of it? Well, yeah, I, I tell you, it, it was extremely hard. But the, you know, I, I recognized that my emotional health and, and my depression was directly tied to the success of the business. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I could turn the business around... And, and get the business restarted again, that that would help me. So with every bit of energy I had, strength that I had, I pushed myself to come to the office every day and get moving again. And it took a number of years, uh, but we finally got the company back into profitability. And the moment the company became profitable again and started to be not only profitable, one of the leading companies in, in the industry again, mm -hmm. I instantly came out of my depression. And I instantly you know, told my therapist, I don't need therapy anymore. I feel fine. And, uh, and, and all, as far as the antidepressants I was taking, didn't need them anymore. It was like, I was instantly cured. So what's the moral of the story? Is it difficult to succeed or is it more difficult to overcome failure? <sighs> you know, I think both are difficult, but... Uh, if I had to pick one over the other, mm -hmm. I would say it's more difficult to succeed. Yeah, I, I know I, I had success pretty quickly. It took me a year and a half, but you know that year and a half of struggle was probably more work and more unknown than coming out of the bankruptcy. Yeah, I, I came out of the bankruptcy pretty quickly as well. Um, I didn't have the depression to deal with at right. the time, um, but uh, as, as far as I think it's more difficult to have that very first success. That's got to be, be the most complicated thing, because the second time around, I knew exactly what to do. I knew. I had the answers. I just had to get the strength to implement it. So what lesson did you learn from that experience? Um, the, the, the big lesson I think I learned is that no matter how far, or say human beings have an unbelievable ability to go through a lot and overcome a lot of obstacles, no matter how bad things may seem, right. that humans have this ability to bounce back. And I discovered that myself. You know, at times where I thought I could never do it, I did. I stepped up to it and took on the challenge and got through going out of business, got through the bank foreclosing on my house, Got through a lot of things that happened at that time, including you know everyone on earth hating me, my entire social circle sort of shunning me because of what happened. Um, it's amazing how how people treat you differently when you your stature and and life changes. I know the feeling very well. Yes. 
Now, you're famous for your logo as seen on TV. How did you come up with that? Well, it was uh, 1988. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had been marketing a product on TV called Amber Vision Sunglasses. Sorry, and hamburgers and sunglasses. It sounds like that, but it's uh, Amber Vision. Oh, Amber Vision, okay. Amber Vision Sunglasses. Um, we were advertising these, su- these sunglasses on TV, and they were extremely popular and extremely successful on TV. And I was in Atlantic City at a $5 blackjack table. I'm not a big gambler, but I happened to be in Atlantic City, alone with a dealer. And the dealer just making conversation said, you know, what do you do? And I said, well, have you heard of Amber Vision sunglasses? And he said, of course, I see it on TV all the time. And that response surprised me that he recognized the name of the product immediately. I didn't think I, was, I had that impact, that we had the impact that we were, could sell a product and that everybody recognized the product. So I went around asking you know, many people, complete strangers, have you heard of Amber Vision Sunglasses? And nine times out of ten, people said, of course, I see it on TV all the time. So what this told me is that we were building a brand recognition. As a side effect of selling the product, we're building a brand. And I thought, you know, if we're building a brand, the product should sell in stores. So I got the idea to sell the store. So I started, I'll get to the SCN on TV in a moment, but this leads to that. So I started to go around from one store to another, just cold calling. All the big accounts at that time, which were Alexander's, Caldor, James Way, Bradley's, Venture stores, all the major accounts, all gone today. But and every account said no, 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 no. They all said things like, uh, "Well, you only have one style of sunglasses. We have a hundred different styles. People want to try on sunglasses. They won't buy it out of a box. Mine came in a box." Mm-hmm. Uh, but finally, I went to one account, Herman Sporting Goods. Uh, they had 160 stores at the time. They're based in the northeast of the country. Right. And uh, the buyer there was just about to turn me down. But then his boss luckily walked by the door and said, what does this guy have? He looked in. Said, what does this guy have? And the buyer looked at his boss and said, Amber Vision sunglasses. And his boss said, I see that on TV all the time. Give him a test order. Let's see how it does. So I got my first order. 200 pieces. So the next thing was I had to design a retail package because right. I just had a brown mail order box. So in designing the retail package, you know, we just put a picture of the glasses on there, Amber Vision. I said, you know, we should remind people that they've seen this on TV. So why don't we just say as seen on TV on the package? Mm-hmm. So initially the graphic artist uh, did something with a burst. And I didn't like it, just the burst. I said, yeah, it needs to say TV. So that night, I, I went home, and I was sitting down on the sofa. And I picked up my TV guide. I saw the logo with the big TV and the TV guide logo. And I said, well, that's a nice logo. That says TV. Everyone knows TV guide. Let's just use that. Just use the red logo from TV guide and put a scene on TV instead of TV guide and the logo. So I did that. Um, you know, luckily, TV Guide never sued us. <laughs> I don't know if they But you've never it. trademarked it, right? But we never trademarked it. We never trademarked it. 
Yeah, I talked to. Yeah, I didn't. I just didn't think about it uh, until it was too late. You know, I did discuss it briefly with an attorney, and the attorney said, "Well, you can't trademark the phrase as seen on TV because it's descriptive. You need to be distinctive to trademark something." And I took that. I never asked him about the actual logo, the red logo, which that later, many years later, I found out I could have trademarked it, but I didn't. Right. Now this all came about the Ambivision came about from the infomercials. Now, what, you've been given the title, the king of the infomercial. What value did you see in the infomercial? Well, the, uh, the, it, the infomercial, basically it's, it's an information commercial, right? You're conveying all the information that consumers need to make a purchase. Uh, so the value of the infomercial was to convey the information, right. all the information about the product, which is very important for many products because you know, a lot of people don't understand a lot of products. If they see a product on a shelf, in a few seconds that they see the package, they don't really get, get to understand it. We had the ability to teach consumers about the product through the infomercial and also convince them to, uh, to buy it. Well, I've seen some of them on YouTube, and, and um, you know the ads, I would say, are pretty much foolproof. You know what you're getting, you know how much you're paying for it, you know what it does, and you know how to get it. Uh, but you yourself have admitted, actually, that they can be goofy and campy. Do you think goofy and campy sell well in America? Well, uh, you know, it, the great thing about infomercials is that we can test. Uh, we can put together a commercial, put mm -hmm. it on TV, and see how many people call. Right. And we do that all the time. And, and we've tested these commercials, you know, goofy and campy, uh, very corporate-looking, you know, straightforward, uh, no goofiness. And I have to tell you, there's no comparison. Right. The goofy and campy outdoes the conservative all the time. People in America like things that are fun. I think they have enough seriousness at work and with their families. There's enough seri seriousness in the whole world to go around. They need a relief. You know, so no, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. It's a nice relief. It's, it's fun. It's entertaining. It's a useful product. The, the, the goofy and ca campiness gets their attention and makes them lighten up, and I think it helps them, it does, we know, it helps them decide to buy the product. Now, as part of your business, you operate Inventor Days. What's that about? Uh, Inventors, Inventor Days uh, came about because so many people, you know, after we become, became successful, mm -hmm. thousands of inventors started calling us to, you know, pitch their products. And it turned out after a while, we had no, there's no way we could meet all these inventors. So we said, why don't we, and then American Idol was on TV, right. and I saw American Idol, and I said, well, that's a great idea. You know, why don't we just, you know, we'll, we'll select what we think are the best inventions, we'll have an Inventors Day once a month, and invite, you know, 20 or 30 inventors to come in and pitch their idea for five minutes. And I bet we'll see a lot of great stuff. So it's just a very time-effective way of meeting with inventors, lots of inventors. And it really turns out great. Because, what do you look for in an invention, then? Well, you know, things that solve an everyday problem, mm -hmm. uh, things, that, things that are novel, obviously, because if they're not novel, people won't buy off of TV. People only buy things that they can't find anyplace else. So it's got to be novel. Uh, we like things that uh, demonstrate well visually because TV is a visual medium. You know, so uh, we, we like things that demonstrate, like, you know, the hose. I'll pitch the hose again. <laughs> the I'm hose, sure you will. The, co the hose has a great demonstration that... It, it expands when you turn on the water, and when you shut off the water, it contracts. 
Right. Just visually, it's just fantastic. Now, when the inventors come to you and you choose one of their products, how do they get paid? Is it royalty-based? Do you pay up front? Uh, it's uh, a combination. It's very similar to a book deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, if an author brings a deal to a publisher, they usually get paid a royalty. Right. Uh, if it's a very exciting book or it's a well-known author, the author may get an advance against the royalty. So it's exactly structured like a book deal. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the inventors, like some authors that do very well, some authors make millions of dollars. In this case, you know, many inventors make millions of dollars. But how do you protect an invention once you take it into your possession? Uh, do, you, do you patent everything you sell? Uh, we do apply for a patent on everything that we sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to tell you, though, the patent is not that critical to our success because the way we market products and hit the market so fast with so much merchandise, before, comp- before the competition can come in, we've already saturated the marketplace. And we always sell our products at what, what we believe is the lowest possible price that we can afford to sell the product for. So there's not a lot of room for, inv- for competition to come in or enticement for a competition to come in because we already hit the lowest price. So you've taken the icing off the cake, really? We've taken the cake. We've taken the cake out of the market. There's really not much left for competition to do. So, you know, patents are only there to protect yourself against competition. Mm-hmm. You know, we've left nothing for the competition to take. So, so I, is I, that because you have a great sort of manufacturing set up abroad who can move things really fast? Uh, well, you know, we, we have so much experience. We've been in business now for 30 years. Mm-hmm. We have so many great relationships uh, first of all, we, can test, we could test market a product for one week on TV, spend only $10,000, and based on that one test, go ahead and decide to buy a million pieces. Not many people have that kind of confidence, you know, because it's because of our experience. And then we have the relationships with factories in China and some in America. We still buy some things in America, but mostly in China. Uh, we have the relationships where... The manufacturers have a history with us. They have the confidence to go ahead and make a big volume in a very short period of time. And also because of the history, are willing to give us the absolute best price that they can give us. So we're buying at the best possible price and always try to pass those those savings on to the consumer. So at, at the end of the day, the consumer's getting a product that solves an everyday problem, something that's innovative and at the best possible price they're getting tre- tremendous value for money. And if you've seen our commercials, you know that value for money is very important to the people that buy our products. But now telebrands not only operate the infomercial, but you also have very strong retail outlets now. Uh, that is correct. So uh, which one do you focus on more? Well, you know, in the early days, 100% of our revenue came directly from consumers. So consumers would send money or call telebrands and order the product. Today, 90% of our revenue is derived from retail chains like Walmart, Target, Bed Bath & Beyond, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, all those mass retail chains buy our products. And they buy our products in huge volume because they sell very well. So 90% of our business comes from retail chains. Let's talk about you a little bit. What Telebrand products do you use at home? 
I use a couple. Um, Now's your time to pitch. Yep, the uh, the pet egg. The pet egg is a callus remover for your feet. Mm-hmm. And I have some calluses on my feet, and I guess most of America does too because it's one of the best-selling products of all time. In fact, we sold 45 million uh, pet eggs. So my wife and I both... And how much, are they, how much do they cost? They sell for $10. Uh, and you sold 45 million? 45 million. So one product gives you $450 million. $450 million at retail. Uh, most of that's sold to retail stores, and we sell it to retail stores at roughly half the price. So mm-hmm. our revenue is half, but still a good number. Now, that's a product you invented yourself. I did. I did. It's, um, it, it, I'll tell you how I invented it. I got the idea from one of our retail accounts told us that you know, the, the hottest ca- growing category right now, this was back in 2007, is the foot care category. For some reason... The category is just exploding. So you should look at something for feet. So I went online and started doing some research for something innovative. I discovered a couple of things. First of all, the biggest problem people had with their feet was calluses. And, I, and further looking for a solution, I found the solution that pe- several people, in fact, you know, dozens of people, said the best possible solution is the cheese grater. And not any t- cheese grater, but... <laughs> a microplane cheese grater. So I went out and bought the microplane cheese grater and tried it on my feet, and I said, yeah, this is great. I can't sell a cheese grater. So over time, we just redesigned it so it catches shavings, looks like the shape of an egg, it's ergonomic, and all the things that you need to sell a product, and came up with a product. I still didn't think it would, it would sell. In fact, the product sat on my desk for almost a year before I shot a commercial on it, and the, the prototype I'm talking about. So we shot the commercial, and to my surprise, it, it turned out to be a big winner. And the other product I use is the, uh, our new uh, product, the pocket hose. And I said, why would a, a multimillionaire use a garden hose? Well, um, I like cars, mm-hmm. and you know, one of my first jobs as a kid was washing cars. And, I, and many times I like to wash my own car. You know, it's easy, and I just go out there with the hose and it's lightweight. I don't have to worry about coiling it up. It's just fantastic. So a multimillionaire using his own product to wash his own cars. Yes. I have no problem washing my own cars. Now, I read an article on you in the Star-Ledger, and it described you as shy, getting anxious in social situations, but you're a great listener. Is that true? Uh, that's true. Yeah, I, I've been, uh, I was a very shy kid. Uh, I'm getting much better now. Uh, usually at parties... I do get anxious, uh, so I tend not to talk to many people. Right. So that's uh, absolutely true. Uh, but, you know, you're in, you're in an industry where you need to be flamboyant, brash, and, and above it all. Well, actually, I don't because I'm behind the camera, right? So uh, the people on camera need to be flamboyant and brash, but uh, I could just be behind the camera and quietly direct. Mm, true. Can't argue with that. Um What's the one thing that no one knows about you? And this better be good. Well, let's see. One thing I told you already is that I wash my own car. Right. Um, hmm. How about I sit on a ball at work? Well, my sympathies, because I sit on two of them. But... Um, <laughs> You sit on a ball at work. Okay. 
Doesn't yeah, that hurt your spine? It's a you know one of those big exercise balls. Uh, you know, someone told me a couple of years ago that it'd be good for my core. Right. And I'm I'm very fitness conscious. You know, I work out, I bicycle ride, I ski. I'm, I'm quite athletic. So I thought sitting on the ball would uh, be a good idea. And I don't know if it really strengthens my core, but I sit on it every day, and I like it. And uh, that's one thing. But no opportunity of leaning back, obviously. Nope. While you're on a phone call or on a highly successful, famous radio show. Yep. Okay. It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, it keeps you on the ball. <laughs> Absolutely. The ball keeps you on the ball. Now. You've obviously uh, been very successful, and, and that comes with its uh, advantages. What's been your greatest indulgence from your success? Well, uh, a couple of things. I, I've always loved cars, and now I, I can afford them. Right. So I, I do indulge every once in a while in a nice car. You know, so uh, What's been your favorite car to date? Uh... Probably uh, my Lamborghini LP640. It's just uh, an amazing car to drive. And I've had a number of sports cars. Mm -hmm. I've had uh, three Lamborghinis, in fact, and a couple of Ferraris and a couple of Porsches. But uh, by far, this one Lamborghini has been my favorite. Any plans on getting the Bugatti? No. It's just uh, that's a, a little bit too expensive. And uh, You made $450 million on something called the Ped Egg. I know, and, uh, you know, I didn't tell you that. Well, you know, growing up in college, when I had those two jobs, right. and I was, still, I was able to save $20,000 because in my heart, I'm very cheap. <laughs> it doesn't sound that way, but I am. So, you know, the Lamborghinis and the Ferraris, you know, typically I, I've been able to flip those over, and some of them I've made money on, and some of them I've lost very little. You know, something like the... Uh, Bugatti, you know, I, I think if I bought one for the cost is a million dollars, that I'd easily lose several hundred thousand dollars. And I work too hard for my money to throw it away that way. So I'd rather not do that. Well, that's very wise. And, and recently, uh, you know, it was in the papers, you know, I bought a, uh, the most expensive penthouse in Miami. I like Miami, and my wife loves Miami. So I was going to ask you, why Miami, Poppy? Well, it's just uh, Miami is like a warmer version of New York. I, we love New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the restaurant, big restaurants in New York have moved down to Miami. Many of our friends go down there. It's great climate most of the year, and uh, it's only two and a half hours away. So we love it, something different. So second home, Miami. We bought the uh, most expensive penthouse ever in Miami. Now, you, I just said I'm cheap, so why would I spend... Penthouses were $34 million. So why would I spend $34 million if I'm cheap? Well, the answer is Miami real estate is booming right now. It's on fire. These penthouses are beautiful, even though they're very expensive. I predict that they're going to open value tremendously, and it'll be end, up, end up being a very good investment at the end of the day. But do you always buy something in terms of an investment in mind? Because when you're indulging... You know, it's, it's, uh, some indulgences are priceless. That is true. Um, but I have to tell you, you know, quite frankly, it still kills me to waste money. You know, so every time I buy anything, mm -hmm. I, I try to, I always think in terms of, will I get my money back on this? 
Of course, some things you never do, but you know, for the most part, the big purchases, I think uh, you can. For example, you know, a car I've been trying to get now is the uh, LaFerrari. The LaFerrari is $1.3 million. It's an expensive car. Right. But the, this is a, a supercar that Ferrari came out with. The last supercar of this caliber that came out was the Enzo for $650,000. And Enzo today will cost you at least $1.3 million. I think the LaFerrari La in a few years will be worth double the price. So that's something I would buy, the LaFerrari for $1.3 million. A beautiful car. Sounds like an indulgence, but it's also a good investment. Now you chose a penthouse as opposed to having an estate on Biscayne Bay. You know, we, we looked at estates in, in Miami. Uh, in fact, we even looked at B Billy Joel's house uh, a few months ago, and Billy Joel happened to be there when we went to go see the house. And these are some magnificent homes in, in Miami. And then we went and looked at some of the hotels, and we looked at the W Hotel and the Satai Hotel and this new hotel that's coming up, the addition where we finally bought and we decided that the estates or the villas would be just too boring because too private, too private. My wife and I love people. Mm -hmm. I said I'm, I, I'm, I'm shy and I, I get anxious in social situations. But I also enjoy being around people. I know it sounds odd, but I do. And my wife, who's, who's com completely opposite of me, she's an extrovert, she absolutely loves people. So it's much more interesting to be around people than to stay away from people. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I totally love Miami, too. In fact, I'm going there this weekend to celebrate my son's 13th birthday. So uh, it, it's a fabulous place. Now, what does the future hold for you and Telebrands? What are the new products that are coming out? What are you diversifying into? Enlighten us. Well, you know, we're always uh, coming out with new products, and I can tell you, because, you know, we're, we're pretty close to launching a couple of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you. I'll give you, your listeners, an advance notice of what's coming up. Now, these are some surprising hits. We never, it never ceases to amaze me what sells. So one thing we have is something called the Perfect Poly. The who? The Perfect Poly, P-O-L-L-Y, right. as in parakeet. This is a replica, life-size replica of a parakeet right. with a motion detector, and as anyone walks by or waves their hand in front of it, it will turn its head, wag its tail, and tweet. And it's sort of like an animatronic sort of parakeet. This is a huge seller. I predict that this will be the biggest seller for telebrands this year, aside from the, after the pocket hose, which is the biggest seller. The parakeet will be next. Beyond that, another surprising seller. So, Paul, you want a cracker. Okay, what's next? The next surprising seller, something you wouldn't think. You know, people always think high-tech, high-tech, high-tech is the way to go. What do you think of a pocket watch? A pocket watch? When's the last time anyone used a pocket watch? Or watches, for that matter. Most people, especially kids, don't use watches anymore. They all use their cell phone to look at the time. That's right. So we have a pocket watch, a nostalgic pocket watch that was designed after a uh, railroad conductor from Kansas City. We call it the Kansas City Railroad Pocket Watch. And that's it. Another very big seller. That's going to be our second biggest seller in the Christmas season. That's surprising. 
I'm not convinced by either. Why do you think they're going to be good sellers? Because we've tested them. Right. And we know from the testing that we've done that these are going to be big sellers. So So people are going to have a life-size parrot in their home? They will have a mechanical version of a parakeet mm -hmm. at home, and they will have a pocket watch in their pocket. And millions of people are going to have that this year. So we're going retro. Absolutely. Retro sells. Yes, it does. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Okay. AJ, thanks for coming on the show, buddy. Stay right. rich. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was the brains of Telebrands, Mr. AJ Kubani. Thank you for listening. Feel free to send in your comments to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the Vip Jaswell Report. Or tweet me if you dare at Vip Jaswell on Twitter. Thank you for listening and keep your ears open for the next airing of the Vip Jaswell Report coming soon.